0: Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel account, Matthew chapter 1. We return this morning to our series in this gospel. We will look this morning at verses 18 through 25, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Before I read these verses, let me lead us once more in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, it was only in extraordinary love of the most profound condescension that you would choose to reveal yourself in your word, uh, that you have come by men of old. Revealed yourself to them and recorded the Scriptures for us. You have spoken by the prophets. You came to your people. You told them your will. But how we thank you, Lord, that in these last days you have spoken by your Son. We know that He is the fullest revelation of who you are and what your will is for your people and for this world. Help us, Lord, to understand this better this morning as we get a view of Jesus, a gaze of Him, who He is and His nature, and what it is He has come to do. Help us to understand the person of Jesus Christ with greater clarity this morning as we consider Your Word together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 1, please follow along as I read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We have in this passage some of the most profound and concentrated truth in all the Bible. The truths expounded in this passage go to the very heart of the Christian faith. Go to the very heart of the early creeds, like the Nicene Creed that we read Earlier in this service, the Apostles' Creed and other such statements of faith, some of the very fundamental doctrines that God's people have believed throughout the centuries summed up in this passage, and we have summed up in this passage some of the truths that are at the very heart of the gospel itself. Uh, We read the Nicene Creed a moment ago. We sometimes read the Apostles' Creed uh, in this service, and the Apostles' Creed derives much of its theology concerning Christ from this particular passage. So, if you were to consider Matthew 1, 18 through 25, and then look at the Apostles' Creed, you would see resonances from this passage. I'm going to read a section from the Apostles' Creed, and hopefully you can spot this. There in the section on the Lord Jesus Christ, we read, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And then this line, who for us men and women and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man." So the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, uh, the virgin birth, Jesus' two natures as fully God and fully man, the gospel itself all taught in our passage. In just eight verses. Uh, So, you're here this morning, and you're not a Christian. So glad that you're here. Uh, Maybe uh, you found us online, have an interest in just going to a church, seeing what it is that Christians believe. Uh, Maybe a friend invited you here this morning, uh, and and so you're looking into things here. Uh, Maybe you're a child or young person, and you've not yet decided what to do with Jesus Christ or all this churchy stuff, and so you're here this morning, but you don't know where you stand with Jesus. Well, this, I hope, is going to be a very helpful sermon, and at least clarifying for you what are some of the fundamental truths that Christians believe? Like, like, what is Christianity about? What is at the heart of the Christian faith? Some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning in our exposition of this passage will help you at least to have more clear in your mind what it is we believe as Christian people in agreement with all Christians throughout the history of the church. And if you're here and you're a Christian, which I trust is most of us, I hope you will both Understand with greater clarity and believe with greater faith some of these doctrines that are at the heart of our Christian faith. Now, this sermon is on the incarnation of the Son of God. It's the heart of the Christian religion. And we'll consider this truth under two main headings this morning as we expound Matthew 1 18 through 25. Two main headings this morning. First, you want to consider the significance of three persons. In the incarnation of the Son of God. The significance of three persons in the incarnation of the Son of God and then, secondly, the significance of three names or titles given to the incarnate Son of God. Okay, so three persons, their significance in the incarnation of the Son of God and the significance of three names or titles given to the incarnate Son of God. Consider with me, firstly, the significance of three persons in the incarnation of the Son of God, uh, they are not, by the way, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, okay? It's not the Trinity. I uh, Consider, the, first of all, the significance of Joseph, the significance of Joseph. Why is Joseph regarded as significant to this story? What do we learn in this passage about Joseph's relevance and significance to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first, and this is crucial, consider one way in which this passage emphasizes Joseph's insignificance or his irrelevance. Because I think the passage wants to emphasize one way in which he is definitely not significant, one way in which he's definitely not relevant to the Lord's incarnation. One of the facts that this passage emphasizes no less than seven times is that Joseph made no contribution in the conception of Jesus in Mary's womb. So, So, Joseph's relevance to this story is not to be found in him making We'll just call it the typical male contribution to the reproductive process. Uh, Matthew wants to insist Joseph had nothing to do with the conception of Jesus. So, look at the text again with me. Uh, We'll highlight how many times this is emphasized that Joseph was not uh, a player, a contributor, in the conception of Jesus. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, number one, just betrothed, not yet married. Matthew wants to make that clear. Before they came together, that's number two, before they came together, sexual overtones to that, before they came together as husband and wife, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's number three. This child was conceived through the activity of the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. That's the fourth indicator that Joseph was not involved in this conception. Why would Joseph want to put his wife away quietly, uh, his betrothed? He was a just man, and presumably he believed that this child was conceived through some kind of adultery. And so, Being a just man, uh, he was going to divorce her according to the Mosaic law. Being a compassionate man, he didn't want to do so publicly. Uh, He didn't want to shame her in public. He wanted to resolve this in private. Uh, but if they were involved in some kind of sexual union before, he wouldn't have to wonder about how it is that Mary got pregnant. But apparently that was not going on, so much so that he assumed he had to divorce her because she had been unfaithful to him. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the fifth indication. The Holy Spirit is involved in this conception. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's number six. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. So even then, he doesn't know her in an intimate way. Number seven, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So what's the point I'm making here that I think Matthew's making here? Simply, put, Jesus had nothing to. Or excuse me, Joseph had nothing to do with Jesus' conception. Matthew wants to emphasize that point to his Jewish readers and those beyond the Jewish religion who are reading this gospel. Joseph made no contribution to the conception of Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. So then, is Joseph just incidental to this story? Uh, what what purpose does he play in the birth and incarnation? of the Son of God? Does he actually have any significance at all? After all, after Jesus' birth and early childhood, we never hear of Joseph again. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, in in Mark's gospel, he's not even mentioned. Uh, In, I suppose, John's gospel, he's virtually not mentioned. Jesus is said to be the son of Joseph a couple of times, but he never comes up in John's account. Uh, And then in Luke, he's only mentioned in the first couple of chapters. And then in Matthew, same thing. He's mentioned in chapter one. We'll see him again in chapter two. And he disappears from the scene. We don't see Joseph ever again. In fact, there are no recorded words of Joseph in the Bible. He never speaks. He never says. I mean, it says in our passage, he called his name Jesus, but that's not a quote. So there are no recorded words of Joseph in any of the Gospels. He's here in these first couple of chapters, and then seemingly disappears. So why do we have him in the Bible? especially if Jesus' birth was a virgin birth, why do we even need uh, Joseph or a husband for Mary at all? Well, here is the reason. Joseph's significance is found in his family lineage. Joseph's significance is found in his family lineage. His significance is found in the line from which he comes. Matthew 1, through 1-17, which we considered a couple of weeks ago, traces Jesus' lineage through Joseph, his legal father. So how is it that Jesus is reckoned to be the promised son of David, the son of Abraham? It is through Joseph. In the Bible, this is the only thing that's emphasized with respect to Joseph. It's the only reason why Joseph matters from a biblical standpoint. Joseph is Jesus' legal father. And it is through Joseph that Jesus' lineage is extended back to David and to Abraham, his royal lineage as the Christ is established, and this is emphasized not only in the genealogy of verses 1-17, through 17, which draws the line all the way down to Joseph himself, who's said to be father of the Lord Jesus, but also in the statement from the angel in our passage, he said to be Joseph the son of David. Matthew's trying to remind us this is David's son, Joseph the son of David, and he's told that he's to take Mary his wife and name the child Jesus. is reminding us Joseph comes from the kingly line, And he as the son of David has a part to play in this story, namely becoming Jesus' legal father and establishing the royal line. And we know Joseph was his legal father because it was the legal father who had the right to name the child. Significant that Joseph is the one who's told to call his name Jesus. Joseph was significant. Joseph was necessary in order to place Jesus within the royal line and thus qualify him to be the Christ, the son of David. Now, one more thing before moving in a moment from this point, because I know some of you are probably wondering this. You're thinking, isn't that kind of cheating? Isn't that a kind of glitch? We really say that Jesus is from the line of Abraham, the line of David, just by virtue of Joseph being his adoptive father, uh, Joseph being his legal father and agreeing to adopt Jesus as his son. There are two facts that I think alleviate this problem, which by the way is largely a modern complaint. Okay, two facts. First of all, in the Bible, one's descendants from a particular line had to do with who one's legal sire was. Legally, who is your father? Who is regarded as your legal sire, your legal father. That is to say, whether or not one was strictly speaking, the biological descendant was not the primary issue. It was whether or not the individual was the legal male heir. That's how descendants was reckoned in the Bible and biblical times. That was the key issue uh, in the Scriptures. Usually, it was the firstborn biological son who was the legal heir, but not always. Uh, Sometimes it was the second son, like in Jacob's case, Sometimes it was further down the line, like in David's case. Uh, and in Jesus' case, there's no biological relation to Joseph at all. Uh, rather, it's through him being uh, uh, the legal parent of Jesus. That's how descendants is reckoned in the Bible. Uh, but the second fact is important also that I think alleviates this tension for us. And that is simply this according to the Bible, adoptive parenthood is real parenthood. Joseph, as Jesus' adoptive father, is Jesus' actual father, and whether or not he makes a biological contribution to his conception. And friends, this has the potential, I think, to be profoundly encouraging to adoptive parents and adoptive children among us. According to the Bible, adoptive parenthood is real parenthood. And if it's not, we're all going to hell. Because then Jesus would not be of the line of Abraham and the line of David and therefore would not be qualified to be the Christ. Jesus being established as the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, depends on adoptive fatherhood being legitimate fatherhood. And so it is. And so you're here and you've adopted children, uh, but you've somehow been led to believe your fatherhood or motherhood of your child is something less than the real thing. Take comfort from this. Uh, It is through adoption that Jesus is reckoned to be the son of David and the son of Abraham and thus our Savior. And if adoptive parenthood isn't real parenthood, we're all still in our sins. But because it is real, legitimate parenthood of the truest kind, we can be saved. Uh, Maybe you're adopted yourself. Uh, You were Uh, adopted by uh, other parents than your biological parents. And you know it's not entirely a rational thought, but you've thought at different times in your life, you know, something must be wrong with me. Uh, Something in my background is wrong. Uh, The fact that I'm adopted means that I'm in some way broken or not right. Well, take comfort, friend, Jesus was adopted. Uh, Your Lord was adopted, and that royal lineage that belonged to His legal father Joseph, uh, was His real, rightful lineage. And friends, maybe the most significant thing I could say on adoption is that uh, by God adopting us as His sons and daughters, we are truly regarded as His children. Uh, the Bible regards us as God's children, adopted by Him uh, as legal heirs who will reign with Christ, our elder brother. But the sermon is not on adoption, so I'll move on from there, but I think great encouragement to be found here. Uh, in that arena. So, why is Joseph significant? It's not because he provides the biological means through which Jesus is born. Rather, Joseph's significance is found in the fact that by taking Mary to himself as his wife after Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' royal lineage is established such that he may be properly regarded as the Christ. Okay, second significant figure in this story. Consider with me, secondly, the significance of Mary, the significance of Mary. Uh, Part of Mary's significance is highlighted in the fact that she is handpicked by God. Um, Simply put, she is chosen by God Himself, and this is emphasized in Luke's account. Uh, There's a lot of material there about the interaction of God through the angels with Mary herself, and we have there in uh, Luke chapter 1 the recording of Mary's song that she sings. We often call it the Magnificat. Uh, She's to be favored among women, and Uh, It's wonderful to hear her celebration of the mercy of God and the provision of God and favoring her and being the mother of the Messiah. Uh, But I'm not preaching Luke. I'm preaching Matthew. And here in Matthew, uh, Mary's thoughts and her inner world are not emphasized, at least not at this stage. Uh, There's very little commentary on what's going on in Mary's heart and mind in Matthew's gospel. Rather, what's emphasized here in Matthew 1, 18-25 repeatedly is the bare fact that Mary was a virgin. Uh, that is to say, she did not know a man. Uh, Jesus' conception and birth were not the product of sexual activity. It was a genuinely miraculous, supernatural virgin birth. Now, let me explain what that does not mean. The doctrine of the virgin birth, so essential to our faith, should not be understood to mean that Jesus', conf- uh, Jesus conception was uh, what so many Roman Catholics believe it was. Uh, they called it an immaculate conception. Maybe you heard the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Maybe you grew up in a Catholic context when you were taught the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is often misunderstood. It is not the idea that Mary was purely sinless throughout her life, though many Roman Catholics did go on to believe that as well, that Mary never sinned even after Jesus was born. The Immaculate Conception is the idea that Mary was spared from original sin. That is to say, she did not have an original sin nature. And thus, Jesus was born to a woman who was, at the time, sinless. And thus, because of this, it's imagined Jesus did not inherit a sin nature Himself. Well, first I'll say the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception does not have a genuinely ancient pedigree. So, even most Catholics didn't believe this throughout history. It's a late medieval kind of incursion into Roman theology, I think declared to be dogma in the 19th century. Okay, so even most Roman Catholics didn't believe this. Uh, But moreover, it's not taught in the Bible at all. Uh, It's not taught in this passage and no other passage that we can turn to. Uh, Moreover, we know that Mary was a sinner. Uh, We know this for a few reasons. One is simply because she's human, and all humans are born dead in sin. We know this also because when she is told she's going to bear the Messiah in Luke's account, she praises God for His mercy toward her, and she rejoices, she says, in God, my Savior. It would be an odd thing for a sinless person to say. And Mary recognized her salvation was caught up in these events. God was working salvation for her as a needy sinner in the birth of the Messiah. Salvation from sin is exactly what Mary needed. It's exactly what we all need. Furthermore, it's just worth noting too, Mary did not remain a virgin. Our passage plainly states that Joseph eventually knew his wife, and of course, Mary had more children uh, after Jesus. We know Jesus had brothers and sisters biologically. Uh, The idea of the Immaculate Conception or Mary's perpetual virginity are all the product of a cult that has grown up around Mary and not something that's taught in the Bible. Okay, move that out of your minds, that aside, a little deconstruction there. But then, wherein lies Mary's significance to this story? Uh, And in this passage in particular, why does she matter? What contribution is she making to this story of the incarnation of the Son of God? And what this passage emphasizes several times is Mary's virginity that Jesus' birth was genuinely a virgin birth. Now, we talk often as Christians about the virgin birth. We talk about it at Christmas time, but also uh, all throughout Christian theology and history, the virgin birth of Jesus has been emphasized. In the early church, this was a major topic of conversation and debate and discussion, the virgin birth of Jesus. We see it reflected in all of our early creeds. So many of the creeds we recite highlight the fact that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, in catechisms that our kids will go, to, go through in, in this church, they will learn that Jesus was born of a virgin. And whenever we baptize someone, uh, among the vows that we ask them to make is that they believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. And maybe you've wondered as a Christian, um, maybe you're a little embarrassed to ask because it seems so foundational, why was the virgin birth so important? Why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? What's the theological import of that idea that Jesus was genuinely born through a virgin birth. Well, there's multiple things we could say. I'll highlight three major things I think we're to see in the virgin birth. First of all, the virgin birth makes clear that Jesus' incarnation was entirely the product of divine activity and initiative. The birth of Jesus uh, through a lowly virgin. We think Mary was maybe 14 or 15 years old uh, when she bore the Lord Jesus. Uh, This was entirely the work of God, and that's what's being emphasized in our passage. This was not according to the will of the flesh. This was according to the will of God, and it suggests that the solution to humanity's sin problem must come from outside of natural means. It must be through a process that is genuinely brought about purely and totally and irrefutably by God Himself. A second reason the virgin birth is important is that it hints at Jesus' human and divine natures. We've confessed already today in the Nicene Creed, Jesus was fully God and fully man. Uh, very God and very man, not half God and half man, Uh, not 90-10. Jesus was at all times fully God, possessing a divine nature. All that is of God was in Him at all times, and yet at the same time, He's fully man. Uh, You must know this about the Lord. He was a man like us in so many ways, tempted as we are yet without sin. Uh, He sweat. He felt discouragement. He felt loneliness Uh, He felt sometimes when the room was cold or the room was too hot, he felt faint. He struggled with sickness. Uh, He would sometimes get cold sores on his lip, like the one I have now that I'm trying to preach through. Uh, He would experience all kinds of natural things as a man, fully God and fully man. Third reason the virgin birth is so significant, uh, and that is that because he is not born of natural means, uh, he did not have an original sin nature. This is the primary way in which Jesus and His humanity is different from us. It's accurate, I think, to say Jesus was just like us, and all that is common to humanity Jesus experienced except for sin. And it is through these means that Jesus, uh, a divine and human nature coming together such that He was not tainted with sin in an original sin nature is emphasized. It is in the virgin birth, the significance of the virgin birth. It shows us that this is the work of God that Jesus is genuinely fully human and fully God, and that he was spirit and original sin nature. So what was the significance of Mary's involvement in the incarnation of the Son of God? She was the chosen virgin mother through whom the Christ was born. Okay, thirdly and finally under this first heading, significance of three persons. We've considered the significance of Joseph, the significance of Mary, now thirdly, the significance of God the Holy Spirit. The significance of God the Holy Spirit. Twice in this passage, uh, once at the end of verse 18 and again at the end of verse 20, the work of God the Holy Spirit in the conception and birth of Jesus is highlighted. Uh, now, let's first be clear again about what this is not. This is not divine insemination. Uh, like, like the Greek and Roman gods of this same period, uh, who we read in mythology came down uh, from heaven and impregnated women through intercourse. Uh, that is in contrast to what's going on here. Uh, this is not divine insemination. But it is genuine divine conception. In a miraculous and altogether mysterious way, God brought about, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, the conception of a baby in Mary's womb. And that baby is the Lord Jesus Christ. God so worked in the conception and birth and incarnation of the Son of God as to bring this child in the flesh, into the world. And in this, He makes clear. That this will be the product of divine initiative. The incarnation of the Son of God is the expression of a great plan of God that was planned of old. God is working in these things to bring about His good purposes, to bring about His will. He has taken the initiative to bring into the world our Savior. Again, not according to the will of the flesh, but the will of God. And this will be one of the themes of Jesus' entire ministry. It's strikingly signaled here at the outset. This is the story of something God is doing. God the Holy Spirit caused Jesus to be conceived in the womb of Mary. All right, putting it all together, we understand now the significance of each person in the incarnation of the Son of God. Now consider with me, secondly, what the latter part of our passage emphasizes, the significance of three names or titles given to the incarnate Son of God. The significance of three names or titles given to the incarnate Son of God the first is this, Christ. Christ is the first title that is mentioned. We're told this is the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. It happened in this way. Now, we've talked some in previous weeks. We did a whole series over the summer uh, that we titled The Coming of the Christ. So, we've talked about what it means that Jesus is the Christ, but I want to put this again in your minds and help you understand what Matthew is doing in his use of this phrase. The Christ, to be the Christ, would be to be the Lord's anointed, the coming king, the son of David, uh, God's chosen and elect servant. And Matthew will labor in this gospel to emphasize this point, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And Matthew wants to introduce this up front in his gospel, and then he wants to show us what kind of Christ Jesus is. Uh, So, he tells us at the start of the gospel, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. And in verses 1 through 17 with that genealogy, Though it's exciting and wonderful, there's no new news to most Jews reading that genealogy. They knew that Christ was to be the son of Abraham, the son of David. But beginning in verse 18 now, Matthew wants to tell us about who exactly this Christ was to be. This Jesus is the Christ, and beginning with his birth, everything's going to be different. Uh, This is how the birth of the Christ took place, and it signals to us. Who this Christ would be. Uh, Matthew wants to clarify to us what we should expect of Christ, what his work is to be in this world. Now, the outline of Matthew's gospel is very hard to make out. Uh, No one disputes, obviously, the fact that from the very beginning he wants to identify Jesus as the Christ. But then, how to outline the book is hard to figure out. There are sort of five discourse sections, teaching sections, but even that, it's kind of hard to sort of map the book around those teaching sections. Uh, But what, what, what The commentators all seem to agree on is that Matthew 16, particularly Peter's confession in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, is sort of the pivot of the whole book. So there in Matthew 16 for the first time, one of the Lord's disciples confesses Him to be the Christ. We read in Matthew 16, the Lord asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is the climactic moment in the gospel. From this point on, everything sort of turns toward the cross. But what I want you to see here up front at the start of the gospel is Matthew sort of preparing us for that confession. In Matthew 16. He's introducing to us in familiar categories who the Christ would be. He's the son of Abraham, the son of David. Uh, but he sort of put the, the category out there kind of like a beaker, and now he's going to fill it with distinct New Covenant, New Testament Christian understanding of who the Christ would be. He's going to do this through expounding the Old Testament and bringing to our attention passages that perhaps many of the Jews of Jesus' day didn't recognize we didn't reflect upon as they ought to. Certainly, he wants to show us that part of what the Christ would do is that he's going to die, a death on the cross for the sins of his people. But up front, he wants to let you know this is the Christ. And beginning in verse 18, he's showing us who that Christ would be. Now consider with me the second title or name given to Jesus. And it is, of course, the name Jesus. Uh, Christ, as I said, is a title. Uh, So children here, uh, I think I made this point a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Christ in Jesus' name is not like His last name. I'm Alex De Prima. Alex, first name, De Prima, last name. It's not like Jesus' name is Jesus, first name, Christ, last name. You no, know, Christ is His title. Like some of you call me Pastor Alex, uh, or we may call the President, President Biden, or something like that. That's His title, right? Well, Christ is functioning in that way. Christ is the title that is given to Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the coming King. The Lord's anointed. But Jesus, well, Jesus is his name. Uh, Like I said, my name is Alex. Uh, To the best of my knowledge, my name was given to me for no particular reason, uh, other than the fact that my mom liked the sound of it. Uh, So, when it came down to name me, she said, I think I like the sound of Alexander. And I was thereafter called Alexander. I don't particularly like the name myself, but it is my name for as long as I'm alive. Uh, and it holds no significance to anyone other than that it's my legal name. Uh, at this moment, I can't even remember what it means uh, according to its original uh, usage. Uh, maybe your name is like that. Uh, like, I don't know why I was named this way. I was named after maybe a relative, or I was named this way because uh, they wanted to have some sort of uh, uh, abbreviation to my name that, that could work well or something like that. Well, hopefully you know if you understand the Bible well, that's not how names work in the Bible. Every name that is given has some sort of significance, Uh, no name more so than the name Jesus. Uh, With this name Jesus, Matthew wants to directly draw our attention to its meaning. He's not subtle about this. So, you're not supposed to go do a bunch of research in ancient Near Eastern culture and things to find out what Jesus means. He wants you to know up front what it is that Jesus means. So, the angel of the Lord says to Joseph in verse 21, "'She will bear a son,' And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Uh, the Hebrew word, the New Testament is not written in Hebrew, it's written in Greek, but the Hebrew word behind this name is Yeshua. Yeshua. The English spelling is Joshua. The Joshua in the Old Testament, his Hebrew name was Yeshua. English, it's Joshua. So Joshua of the Old Testament had the same name as Jesus. Uh, Jesus is sort of the Greek spelling, the Greek rendering of that Hebrew word, Yeshua. So, Yeshua Hebrew, Joshua uh, 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 English, Jesus Greek. Uh, Now, who was Joshua in the Old Testament? You children here, maybe you remember the story of Moses and then Joshua after him. Uh, Joshua was Moses' successor. Uh, He was the one who climactically delivered God's people into the promised land. He led the Israelite people in their conquest of the land of Canaan and brought them into the land that had been promised to their forefathers. He's thus rendered to be a kind of deliverer or savior for the Israelite people, and that's what his name means. Yeshua means Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. That's what Yeshua, Joshua, means. Now, Joseph, in our passage, is told that he's to call this child Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew. Well, why? We're told because he will save his people from their sins. Now, you can just sort of read over that uh, as something familiar to you. Yeah, Yeshua, he will save his people from their sins. But what Matthew has done is he's just revealed a cardinal truth, a truth of titanic implications. About who it is that Jesus is going to be. And here's what I'm getting at. Jesus, or Yeshua, doesn't mean He will save His people from their sins. It's not what it means. Yeshua simply means God saves or God delivers. Now, this is a crucial question, and it will illumine our study of Matthew's gospel as we go along. Uh, what were the Jews of Jesus' day expecting God to deliver them from in the person of the Messiah. Uh, Though the Old Testament speaks in some places of the forgiveness of sins, this was not front of mind for most of the Jews of Jesus' day when they thought about the coming of the Christ. There's no denying that the dominant concern in first century Jewish hope and expectation for the Messiah was with their political liberation. They had been in bondage for centuries, and they believed that when Messiah came, He would restore to them the fortunes of the Jewish nation. He would give them back the land, and He would restore the Davidic kingdom, so they thought. But this word from the angel in Matthew 1 verse 21 signals a most extraordinary revelation, and it recalibrates the expectations of Matthew's readers concerning the Messiah. This word from the angel is going to send them in a different direction what their expectations were concerning Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. If the previous genealogy in the first 17 verses provoked any kind of political euphoria like, look, our Messiah has come. Uh, Now we are going to have the restoration of the monarchy, and we are going to have the restoration of the land, and and now we are going to overthrow our Roman overlords. If, if, If that genealogy was provoking that kind of sense of what Jesus is going to do, Matthew wants to silence that now. Matthew wants to make clear any construal of the Messianic mission that involves as its central aim, political liberation, is wide of the mark of what Jesus' actual mission will be. The angel reveals that Jesus will indeed be a Savior. He will be a Yeshua, but a Yeshua of a different kind altogether. Uh, He will deliver His people from bondage, but it will be from a deeper kind of bondage than His people were thinking. He will save His people from oppression and affliction, But it will be from a far more profound kind of oppression and affliction. He will rescue his people from their enemies. But in his case, he will rescue them from the greatest enemy of all. This Jesus, this Yeshua, will save his people from their sins. And this is where Matthew will immediately go in this gospel. He wants to make plain from the get go this is about delivering people from sin. Uh, So, immediately in chapter 3, we learn that His ministry will begin in the context of a call to repentance. And we learn later, His ministry will assert His authority on earth to forgive sins. Uh, Jesus will make clear later on in the gospel that He comes not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And His mission will culminate in His death as a, quote, ransom for many. He will offer Himself up as a sacrifice, we're told, for the remission of sins. That's why the Lord's Supper is given. Uh, we, we take the bread and the cup as a symbol of the new covenant, the blood of Christ for the remission of sins. He will not, as Yeshua, as Jesus, become a political Savior for the nation because salvation that Jesus will bring is not principally from political oppression. The deliverance He brings is not chiefly deliverance into the physical land, and the rescue He brings is not primarily rescue from national enemies. No, what Jesus is going to do, friends, is far better Uh, Jesus is a better Yeshua, the true and better Joshua, the true and better Savior, Deliverer, Rescuer, and the salvation He brings will be greater and grander because He will come to bring salvation from sin itself, which, brothers and sisters, has always been the grand issue. What is the fundamental problem the gospel was given to address? What is the fundamental issue that required the covenants and the promises in the Old Testament. What is humanity's problem according to the Bible? It is this, how can a holy God dwell with sinful people in perfect righteousness and holiness and joy? That's the issue. That's the problem the Bible speaks into. Uh, that's the problem the gospel has come in the fullness of time to solve. The greatest problem facing God's people in the Old Testament was not that they were in bondage in Egypt or that they didn't have the land of Canaan or that they didn't have their festivals or a monarchy or the temple or that they were in captivity in Babylon or later on in Rome. The problem has always been that mankind is sinful and that any hope of reconciliation with God and restoration to right relationship with Him and Shalom and the New Jerusalem must come through the forgiveness of their sins which have alienated them from God and invited his just wrath upon them. Therefore, Jesus, in our passage, is revealed as a Yeshua, a deliverer, but one so much greater than the first Joshua, because the deliverance that Jesus brings is from sin itself. Now, just by way of application, friends, you understand in your life this is the crucial issue. This is the crucial issue for me and for you. It is that we're sinners, And our sins have offended a just and holy God. The gospel we preach is not meant to solve, at least in its first application, any other issue. The problem that we all face before a just and holy God is that we're sinful. And we have, through our own rebellion and wickedness and recalcitrance, invited His wrath upon us. We have offended a just and holy God. I wonder if there are any here who have been looking to Jesus for other things, other than the forgiveness of sins. Uh, That's what the Jews of Jesus' day did. They were expecting the Christ, the Joshua, Messiah, Deliverer, Savior guy, uh, to do other things for them other than forgiving their sins. Uh, They were expecting uh, Him to sweep all before uh, and to usher in the new kingdom uh, where He would reign on the throne of David. He's going to reestablish the monarchy. He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to overthrow their political oppressors. They were looking to the Messiah to do different things for them than what actually He came to do. I wonder if we could be guilty of that in our own lives. Uh, 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 do Do you judge God's goodness to you in Christ and His faithfulness to you on whether or not He gives you a happy marriage? Are you looking to Jesus ultimately to deliver you from your anxiety and depression? Uh, or to give you that desired boyfriend or girlfriend or or spouse, Uh, or to establish for you financial security. Uh, When do you most feel that God is not being good to you? I think oftentimes underneath that feeling is that we're expecting things from God that He Himself hasn't promised. God doesn't promise to give us health, wealth, and prosperity, at least not now. The promise of the gospel, friends, is that we can have our sins forgiven. That's the grand issue. Uh, that I have sinned so wickedly and ignobly and heinously before the Lord. And this Jesus, this Yeshua, has come to save me from my sins. And, friends, here's maybe the best news of all. If He saves us from our sins, well, He saves us from everything else. Uh, I talked to some of the doctors in the church, a number of doctors here, medical personnel and I've heard some of them use this language, I think, that uh, you have to know as a doctor, you don't treat the presenting issue. Uh, you don't treat the symptom. You treat the disease. So, a patient comes in complaining of pain in their side. You don't think, well, let me give them some pain meds and send them on their way. Uh, as a good doctor, you know, well, that's a symptom, right? Pain in their side. But I know from my medical training, that could be pancreatic cancer. Uh, That could be appendicitis. That could be, I mean, some doctor could give me other options up here. I'm not a physician myself. But the point is to say this, that if you deliver the patient from the cancer, well, then the symptoms will be eradicated also. You understand, friends, uh, all the evils of our lives, the suffering we experience under the curse, they're symptoms of the greater and grander issue. And that is that sin has entered the world and that we ourselves are sinners. And so if Jesus can be a Yeshua who saves us, not just from, like, political enemies, but from our sin, bondage and dominion to Satan and to wickedness and to sin, well, then we'll be saved from everything else. We'll be saved from loneliness uh, and from anxiety and fear and from discouragement and from cancer and from car crashes and from slander and from persecution uh, and from wars and from natural disasters. All of that comes because Jesus can get rid of the root issue. And that is sin in our hearts and sin in our world. The reason we could have the new heavens and the new earth in perfect splendor and righteousness and peace is because Jesus is a Yeshua who saves his people from their sins. And friends, I'll just say this. To people who know themselves to be sinners and know sin to be their greatest problem, this is the best news in the world. But to people who don't see sin as their greatest issue, this will never be a gospel to them. This will never be good news until, my friend, you see yourself in a desperate situation before a just and holy God that you have, through your own volition, sinned against Him and violated His righteous standards and introduced opposition and alienation between you and God. You're never going to see Jesus as the good news that it is. But if you know that I'm guilty, I'm vile, I'm helpless, I'm condemned under the just wrath of God. Well, then that his name is Jesus becomes the greatest news of all. He is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And anyone discouraged here, uh, ashamed of the wrong that you've done, be encouraged. Jesus has come to save you from it. This is his mission. Uh, 1 Timothy 1:15, this is a trustworthy saying, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's in his name. Jesus the Yeshua who will deliver his people from their sins. Uh, I've not managed my time well again. This has been a bad habit I've been forming. I need to break it. Briefly, thirdly, and finally, instead of the last name that Jesus was given. He's called the Christ in this passage. He's called Jesus. He's called, thirdly, Emmanuel. We sung this before the sermon. After the angel addresses Joseph, Matthew then adds this editorial comment, Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then he quotes Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's a quote from Isaiah 7.14. It's hard to make out what exactly is going on in Isaiah 7.14. I want to ask you to turn there. Uh, the words are spoken to Ahaz and he's told there's gonna to be a sign that the Lord gives him. Uh, the virgin, or the young woman, depending on how you understand the language, will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And the scholars and commentators debate, did that have like an immediate preliminary sort of application in Ahaz's life? Or was it pointing ahead to the Messiah? I don't really wanna get into the debates over that, uh, because the bottom line is this. Matthew understands that verse as a genuinely messianic text. He sees, in Isaiah 7:14 a prophecy concerning Jesus. That the virgin shall conceive Mary, and that they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Now, that name Emmanuel is not prominent in the Old Testament, but it is introduced in Isaiah 7.14. And if you were to read Jewish scholars of the day, no one is expecting Emmanuel to look like what Matthew is talking about. So, whatever their notions of Emmanuel might have been, perhaps they thought uh, God would keep his promises, and that will be Emmanuel God with us, or God's presence will be among the people. I mean, one day the temple will be re erected, and there the Lord will meet with his people, and God will be with us. They could have all kinds of things about what Emmanuel means. Matthew wants to tell us this is the definitive understanding of Emmanuel. In the most profound sense, what does it mean, Emmanuel, God with us? The culmination of this truth is that God is purposed to company with us in the person of his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Emmanuel means is that God himself will come in human flesh the God-man, and He will dwell among us. He will bridge the gap that we could not bridge. Uh, He will come and be for us everything that we could not be. He will come and do for us everything that we could not do. Uh, Whatever paltry ideas the Jews might have had about what Emmanuel would mean, Matthew is making clear that it's in Jesus Christ that we have, in the most profound sense, Emmanuel, God with us. He What this means ultimately, that His name will be called Emmanuel, is that God has become man, incarnate in human flesh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. God is among us. Uh, this is Matthew's version of that famous statement from the Apostle John in John's gospel, verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has come in human form. He's come as a man to live with us, to die for us, to do for us the things that we can never do. And this becomes the inspiration uh, for what I think is one of the greatest lines in all of hymnody uh, from Charles Wesley. Pleased as man, with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Whatever God with us meant to those Jews, they never thought of this. That God would actually come in human flesh. That he would bridge the gap we could not bridge. He would do for us what we could never do. What we have in the incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us, is God identifying Himself with our condition, God identifying Himself with our welfare and meeting our need. This is God coming to us, dwelling among us, and coming to save us. And friends, this is always what was needed. If Emmanuel was ever going to happen, it would not be us with God, it would be God with us. If we were ever going to be saved, it would be the Lord condescending to save us. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation in your own life uh, where you were purely and totally, from a human standpoint, helpless, uh, where, where you just know, if I'm going to get out of this, uh, it's going to have to be through someone else intervening in my situation. Uh, maybe a couple experiences I've had like that. Uh, I, our house burned to the ground when I was a kid. And I was in a room, a burning room, and I needed someone to come in and save me. And I knew, uh, if I'm going to get out of this, there's there's just nothing I can do. Someone must come and rescue me. I remember being in a a car with smoke coming out of it after an accident and being kind of caught in the car and thinking, if I I get out of this alive, it's got to be through some paramedic or or, or fireman. Maybe you've been in a situation like that. Well, you just know, if if I'm going to live, if I'm going to survive, if I'm going to get out of this, someone must intervene. I'm out of resources. I am genuinely helpless. That is the picture of humanity at the dawn of the coming of the Messiah. If we are going to be saved at all, God must take some kind of initiative. Uh, God must bridge the gap. God must scale the distance. If the alienation uh, and the obstacles I've introduced through my sin are to be overcome, God must do something. And friends, this is what He's done. In unspeakable love, God has condescended to save us through sending His Son into the world conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, to be our Savior, to be God with us. Extraordinary love, especially when you think there's no reason it had to be so. We didn't supply God with any good reason to come and be Emmanuel. Friends, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son uh, we must see in Jesus, uh, the baby born of Mary, Emmanuel, God with us, the impulse and expression of the love of God, uh, such that we're led to sing: the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His only Son to win, His erring child, he reconciled. You and I pardoned from our sin. You know, the, the, the third verse of that song, some of you know it, especially if you grew up in church. As I recall, uh, was not written by the original author. The third verse of that song, which I'll quote to you in a moment, was found in, uh, uh, there was a, A man, a Christian man who was going insane, uh, early 1900s, and he was spiraling out of control with anxiety and depression and fear, and uh, he would go in and out of sort of sanity and insanity, rational thoughts and irrational thoughts, and what he would do, much like what some of us do, is he would scrawl on the wall of his room uh, verses and quotations and poems. And they think he wrote this poem, this one line that was later included in the song. In a moment of sanity and clarity and serendipity, as he was fighting the fears and temptations and anxieties of his life, he reminded himself of these truths in a poetic verse Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? and every man a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky. Uh, friends, God has shown to us unspeakable love in the giving of His own dear Son. Who could write the story of it? Emmanuel, God with us? in human flesh to bear our sins and to be the Yeshua we need who could deliver us from sin and everything else along with it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we would look to the Lord as our Jesus, our Savior, our Deliverer the one who could free us from sin, sin's guilt and penalty, sin's bondage and dominion. We pray, Father, that we would come to him as Emmanuel, God with us. Oh, Lord, we know that you have undertaken every initiative to bring us into relationship with you. What could we have done, helpless as we were, helpless as we are. We thank You for every initiative of Your Spirit, uh, every impulse of grace, every expression of love that has made a way of salvation for sinners like us. We pray that we would all call upon this Jesus, this Emmanuel, this Christ, uh, to be for us everything that we could not be for ourselves, to rescue us uh, from the power and penalty of sin forever, and to bring us into everlasting life. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.